please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 43 this morning. We're uh, getting close to the giving of the Ten Commandments, and uh, so Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll slow down in chapter 5 and look at one commandment each week, so that'll take us a couple of months to get through, but uh, Moses has a few more things to say before uh, the Ten Commandments. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know, therefore, today... And lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally. Without being at enmity with him in time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness, on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth and Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan and Bashan for the Manassites. Well, friends, if you were asked to provide a grand tour of the greatest achievements in the history of the world, what would make your list? 
it's hard to know where to begin, isn't it? Because there have been so many amazing achievements, and not only so many, but also so many different kinds. But let's, let's allow our minds to wander for a few minutes and try to give a brief account of some of the tremendous achievements in the history of the world. There have been some incredible architectural achievements, haven't there? Things like the Suez Canal, the Great Pyramids of Giza, the Burj Khalifa, which I looked up this past week. It currently is the tallest skyscraper in the world, standing at an astounding 2,716 feet. Put that in perspective. That's pretty close to how high up you are at the top of Ligonier Mountain. That's incredible. There are great works of art. Uh, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, Michelangelo's David, Van Gogh's Starry Night, Monet's Impression Sunrise. There are countless musical masterpieces like Bach's Concerto in D minor, Beethoven's Fifth, the jazz of Miles Davis, which I enjoy listening to when I'm studying. There have been great military achievements like the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, the conquest of the entire known world by Alexander the Great, the defeat of the Spanish Armada, the Normandy landing in uh, 1944, June 6, D-Day, which was the largest uh, seaborne invasion in history, laying the foundation of the Allied victory of World War II. There have been amazing scientific and mathematical accomplishments like things we take for granted every day, the invention of the wheel, the Pythagorean theorem, the the Gutenberg press, uh, indoor plumbing, the harnessing of electricity, the invention of internal combustion engines, Einstein's theory of relativity, the Hubble telescope, the mapping of the human genome, the invention of the internet and smartphone and the iPhone. Think about how much that has changed our lives. There have been great accomplishments in law and justice and and jurisprudence, the Bill of Rights, uh, the movement of abolitionism, the civil rights movement, and it keeps going. There have been incredible athletic achievements. Think about the first climb to this peak of Mount Everest in 1953 by Sir Edmund Hillary. The incredible foot speed of Usain Bolt over 27 miles per hour. One of, one of the most impressive achievements to me is that of Alex Honnold's free solo climb of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. El Cap is a 2,900-foot rock face, and free soloing is a form of climbing where you climb without ropes or harness. It's just you, a bag of chalk, and a pair of climbing shoes. You can watch it. It's been documented. I think it's on Netflix still. Try to watch it without your hands sweating and your heart beating out of your chest. I couldn't do it. Uh, There are great accomplishments in literature. We could go on and on here. Homer's Iliad, the poems uh, of John Donne, uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, and so, so many more. 
There have been incredible achievements in the area of exploration, the discovery of the new world in 1492, Ferdinand Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe, the first human flight by the Wright brothers in 1903, and only, think about this, only 66 years later, the first lunar flight that led to Neil Armstrong's steps on the moon. That, that, that just amazes me. There's only 66 years between the first human flight and the first flight to the moon. And then consider that in 2012, a, a space probe known as Voyager 1, which launched in 1977, became the first man-made object to enter interstellar space, the space between the stars crossing over the boundary of our solar system, escaping the gravity of the sun. And it's, it's still out there, beeping back to Earth. And on and on and on we could go. And maybe you think at this point, I am going on and on and on and on about achievements. But even after every imaginable dimension of accomplishment is investigated, the grandest tour of the universe reveals that there is nothing that can compare to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. This one true and living God has not only made himself in, known in the work of creation, in the history of salvation, but in the climatic revelation of his crucified and risen son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To think, to think that such a God would become a man to suffer and die and rise again for the salvation of sinners like us is simply astonishing. It boggles the mind. There is no God besides him. And this passage helps us understand that he's not, he's not a bigger or better version of us. He is categorically different. There is no one who compares to him. And because he is incomparable, his works are incomparable. And because God and his ways are utterly unique, he is worthy of our wholehearted devotion. It's the message of this passage. So let's have a look at it where Moses dares us to name something or someone greater than God. This passage is divided up into three parts. It's very easy to organize because it's organized by three commands or three imperatives. First, ask. Ask the questions. Secondly, know. Come to the answer. And then thirdly, keep. Keep the commandments. And so first, ask. Ask the questions. Uh, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, Christopher Wright says that Moses is proposing a research project on a truly cosmic scale. Uh, you think about it, the sheer daring of this passage is amazing. As Moses reaches the climax of his first address here in Deuteronomy, Moses throws down the gauntlet and unleashes a torrent of questions in verses 32 through 35. And here we are invited to embark on an exhaustive investigation of everything, 
including the limits of time. Do you see that in verse 32? Since the day that God created man, the limits of time, and also space, from one end of heaven to the other. We are invited to go even farther than Voyager 1. (laughs) But even if we do, we will find nothing greater than what God did on earth when he redeemed an enslaved people out of Egypt. And so Moses is not being shy. He is not ashamed, is he, of the good news of redemption. This, This dying prophet who led God's people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai that blazed with the fire of God challenges anyone to find anything greater than God. You see, far from being afraid of people asking difficult questions, Moses actually dares people to ask questions and to sincerely seek out the answer. He, he even commands it in this passage. Just go on and ask. Explore every corner of creation. Check out every ancient library and see if there is anything like this. If anything has ever happened or been heard of, that compares to this. You know, just one of the practical applications of this passage is that we, we shouldn't shy away from asking questions. We shouldn't shy away from other people uh, asking hard questions. Of course, we can ask questions for the, with the wrong motives. But we shouldn't shy away from asking questions like this. Christians should be fully engaged in the life of the mind, the disciplines of historical, scientific, cultural, literary inquiry. Because far from threatening our faith or the the, the security of our theological convictions, we know that to explore the true nature of reality only serves to enhance our understanding. Because Christ plays in 10,000 places, as the English poet Gerard Hopkins puts it. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. And and notice in verse 33, Moses doesn't even limit himself to history. Now he's talking about history, what has happened, what has happened in time and space, real events in history, but he doesn't limit himself to that. Do you notice he asks whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of? In other words, he includes the world of myth and legend and the far reaches of the human imagination in the scope of this investigation. No mind has conceived anything like the God of Israel, not the ancient myths of Mesopotamia, not Marvel comics, not even the unreal world of idols is there found a God like this. It's also worth noticing that when Moses describes God's great saving act of redemption in verse 34, did you notice that he piles up seven expressions, seven descriptions? And that's, that's no accident. Seven descriptions to communicate the idea of perfection. And so Moses says that God... Uh, by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, 
delivered his people. He piles up these descriptions to communicate the idea of perfection, of completeness. No matter how educated you are, no matter how cultured you fancy yourself to be, no matter how much of the world you have been able to see, even if you are able to investigate some of the greatest mysteries of the universe, Moses is teaching us, you never come close to anything like the God of Israel. I think we might be tempted to say, okay, but is Moses exaggerating here? Is he blowing this out of proportion a bit? Or is this just a rhetorical flourish on his part? Well, no, not at all. Think about it. The story of the Exodus really is unlike anything in all of history, even within the stories of myth and legend. Now, of course, we should not forget that this is a very ancient story that has already come to shape us in our world in all kinds of ways that we take for granted. We're thousands of years of, uh, removed from the original telling of this story. But when Deuteronomy was first written, no one had ever heard of a God like this. No one had ever heard of a God who created the heavens and the earth but also bound himself in a covenantal bond, a bond of commitment to a tiny slave nation and gave promises to their fathers and promised to bless their children and through their offspring bring blessing to the nations of the world. I mean, who does that? Not Zeus, not the ancient gods of Mesopotamia, the gods of the ancient world did not do things like this. The countless gods of the ancient Near Eastern world did not act like the one God of Israel. They enslaved people. They didn't set enslaved people free. Just like our idols today do not free people. They enslave people. The ancient deities were not known for invading empires like Egypt and out of their great love, redeeming oppressed people like Israel. But did you notice that this is precisely why God said he acted? According to verse 37, because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You see, the entire story of the Exodus is rooted in the incomprehensible mystery of divine love. And the only thing that's even more amazing than how God redeemed a slave nation like Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm is the way that God has saved you and me, brothers and sisters, by becoming a man and stretching out his arms and dying as a slave dying the death of a slave in order to set enslaved people free. And so Moses is not exaggerating when he makes these bold claims about the utter uniqueness of the God of Israel. And we are not exaggerating when we make the bold claim that there is none like the Lord Jesus Christ who redeems people out of slavery by the shedding 
of his very own blood. And that takes us to the second command in this passage, which is to know. Don't, don't only ask, but come to the right answer, which is to know that the Lord is God and that there is no other besides him. You know, I think it's, I think it's right to say that one of the most concerning things about contemporary evangelical Christianity is we have lost what, what I would call the godness of God. The godness of God. Instead of getting our theology from the revelation of God that comes from above, our functional theology often comes from below, arising out of our own thoughts, our own experience, our own feelings, which fluctuate up and down. And as a result, we tend to think of God as simply a bigger or perhaps better version of ourselves. But that is not, that is profoundly not the kind of God Moses describes here. It is not the kind of God Moses calls us to know here. See, the the refrain that Moses repeats in verse 39 and again in verse uh, verse 35 and again in verse 39, where he says, to you it was shown. Okay, notice the revelation is from above. It was shown. It doesn't come from below. It comes from above. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. And again in verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. Kids, if you're taking notes this morning in the bulletin or in the, the sheet that helps you uh, keep notes for the sermon, this is the main idea of the passage, okay? God is unique. There's no one like him. It's crucial for us to see That when Moses says there is no other, he is saying that God is unlike anything else. He is one of a kind. He is not just a bigger or better version of us. He's certainly not the big man upstairs. It's not simply, let's get this right, it's not simply that he's a more powerful or intelligent or wise or loving being than we are. That is not the point that's being made here. The point is that there is an infinite and qualitative distinction between God and everything that is not God. Between God and all of creation. You see, it's not just a matter of quantity, it is a matter of quality. The difference is categorical. There is an infinite qualitative distinction between the creator and creation. And nothing makes this distinction more clear Then the word of the cross, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, when he says that, you know, the foolishness of God is wiser than man. The weakness of God is stronger than man. Here we discover someone who is unlike everything else, even though everything is somewhat like him, because he's the one who brought everything into being. But you see, this is a lesson we need to to learn. God is not like us. We are are like him. But the similarity, the connection, 
is in that order, not the other way around. So, for example, when Scripture says God is light, it is not saying that God is like light, is it? No, the reality is that light is like God. Everything that's brilliant, everything that shines, everything is like him. But he is not like anything else. See, that's the infinite and qualitative distinction that Moses is is, uh, getting at here when he insists there is no other like him. He doesn't exist on a, on a, alongside of a pantheon of of other deities. He's in a class of his own. There's no one besides him. And to borrow the language of, uh, of Anselm, God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. And again, we can see this most clearly when we, when we think about the gospel, where God demonstrated his power to conquer by dying. Or to bring light out of darkness, to achieve glory through shame, to turn the worst thing that happened in the history of the world into the best thing that ever happened. So we need to think about this infinite and qualitative distinction that Moses is teaching us here. We think of, about it along these lines. There's, there, have been a lot of, uh, there have been a lot of works and potential achievements in the history of the world that came up short because the one who was seeking to accomplish them died. So a lot of unmet achievements because of the death of the one seeking to accomplish them. But one of the wonders of the gospel is that unlike so many human works left unfinished by death, Jesus finished his greatest work by dying. Hanging from the cross... With nails in his hands, he said, it is finished. Who does that? He's quoting Psalm 22, which at the end, of course, is reflecting on all of the nations of the earth coming to worship the Lord as a result of this man's suffering. And there he is on the cross. He doesn't wait until Easter morning to declare it after emerging from the tomb, there on the cross, he he says, it's done. The work is finished. Who does that? There is no other besides him. Only God can do this. Only God could take the most brutal instrument of human torture and turn it into a symbol of triumph. And so we, we should lay it to heart, as Moses says in verse 39, in, in a way that truly revolutionizes the way that we assess reality, the way that we see things, the way that we make judgments, the way that we really look at everything. Ask. Ask the questions. Know. Come to the answers. And then thirdly, keep. Keep the commands. We need to appreciate the simplicity and the straightforwardness of this passage because of who God is, because of the fact that there is no one like him, and because of what God has done for you, because there is no one who could do what God has done for you. Keep his 
commandments. That's the message of this passage. You see it in verse 34, after, or verse 40, excuse me, after all of this. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. You see, to know that the Lord is God and to know that there is no God who can do what he has done necessarily leads to a life of obedience. It's really that, it's really that simple. It's not complicated. Because the maker of heaven and earth has revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ Because God has called us to be a holy nation for his own possession. Because he has redeemed us with an outstretched arm. Because it was shown to you that the Lord is God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, walk in the way of his statutes and rules that it may go well with you. That's the basic message here for us today. Knowing that there is nothing to compare with what God has done to redeem us. And knowing that there is no one who compares to this incomparable God. We will live lives marked by humility and wholehearted obedience to the statutes and the rules. And if we know there is no one besides the Lord who made heaven and earth and who has redeemed us for himself then we will serve him with undivided devotion. But friends, the very fact that we often do not serve him with undivided devotion is a reminder that we need to keep coming back and we need to keep asking the questions and remembering who God is, that there is no one beside him, and we need to keep remembering his mighty act of redemption accomplished in and through Jesus Christ so that our hearts would be more fully devoted to him. I mean, think about it. We, we recognize this Sunday by Sunday when we worship together that there really is no one besides him. There is no one else than the one who died for our salvation, the one who lifts up the needy and saves slaves. Now, you know, that, that, I, I, that feels kind of like a climax point in Moses' address, doesn't it? So it's kind of weird that in verses 41 through 43, after the, all of this exalted language about God in verses 32 through 40, attention now turns to the topic of cities of refuge. Right, here we have this call to keep God's commands just before Moses is going to give us the summary of the law and the Ten Commandments. But first, there are these verses about making legal protections for those who are guilty of accidental homicide. And I'll I'll admit, this left me scratching my head. (laughs) What's what's this doing here? Why why is it located here in Deuteronomy? Moses is building to this climatic ending of his first address, and he's going to give us the Ten Commandments. And then there's this seemingly out-of-place provision for the protection of accidental homicide. Why? God isn't like us. That's one reason. 
Now, let me say this. We'll have a chance to look at the provision of cities of refuge in much greater detail later on in our study of Deuteronomy because Moses will return to it in Deuteronomy chapter 19 at much greater length. So we will get into the significance of, Lord willing, we'll get into the significance of this later on in our series. But for now, I just want us to simply note that this seemingly abrupt turn to a down-to-earth application of God's law in a very specific matter of justice is actually very instructive for having good theology and knowing what this incomparable God is like. Think about it. Here's this call in light of who God is and what he has done to wholehearted devotion. And immediately you have the application of the law to a specific matter of human justice. After all, think about it. It is very easy for us, isn't it, to think in terms of theological abstractions without actually applying what we know. But as the Lord Jesus constantly reminded us, the the love of God and the love of neighbor cannot be separated. They, They belong together. God has joined these two together and we dare not separate them. The vertical and horizontal dimensions of our lives must be kept together. So think of it this way. You can't go on and on about wholehearted devotion to God and not give a rip about your neighbor. You can't go on and on about loving the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and not care about matters of human justice. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is going to teach us again and again and again. Friends, that's exactly what we see at the cross as well, isn't it? That the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of Christ's love and Christ's obedience to his Father, at the same time also his love and his care for his neighbor, for his brothers and sisters. It's perfectly bound together. So what is the message of Deuteronomy 32 through 43 for the Christian church today? God's word is daring us to ask the question, is there anyone to whom you can compare him? Is there anyone like the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth who draws near to a slave people to set them free from oppression and to make them his own, his special people? Ask and know, for to you it was shown in the gospel. That Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other besides him. And because he loves you and gave himself for you and brought you out of slavery to sin and death by his great power. Therefore, laying all of this to heart, keep his commandments which perfectly bring these two things together, love for God and love for neighbor. May the Lord in his grace allow us to hold these two loves together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and all the ways that it speaks to us, ways that it challenges us, the ways that it 
it instructs us, the ways that it encourages and builds us up, and the way, all the ways that it equips us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess together this morning that there truly is no one like you in heaven or on earth. And we pray that you would help us each this morning know this and lay it to heart. And by the grace of the gospel, uh, keep your commandments as we follow after our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.